0: Paul and Barnabas are on the road. You may remember before Christmas, we left them on their way to Iconium. And while we've been eating and opening presents, they've been busy preaching the good news. You may remember they were sent off on this mission by the church in Antioch. There's Antioch. And last time we saw them pass through Seleucia, then Salamis and Paphos on Cyprus, and then Perga, Pamphylia, and then Antioch in Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch. And today we rejoin them in the city of Iconium. We're going to come back to this map later because there is some significance to the route they take on their journey. And as we follow these men on the road, we see the good news in action. I think we can boil down what we're going to look at this morning into three truths. The good news unites and divides. The good news makes demands. And those who respond to the good news must be supported. In many ways, this is an ideal passage for the end of the year. Along with the last passage we looked at, this brings us back to basics. Maybe as a church, and maybe as individuals, this passage will help us refocus ourselves, ready for a new year of serving God. So if you haven't already turned to Acts chapter 14, you'll find it in the church Bibles on page 1109. We'll pick up at verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace. By enabling enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. The message here is that the good news unites and divides. We've seen before that the good news is all about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. We've also seen that when Paul and Barnabas go to a new area, they start in the synagogue. They can always find a ready-made audience there. Verse 1 says the synagogue in Iconium had both Jews and Gentiles there. So these particular Gentiles must have been ones who are interested in becoming Jews. And initially, we're told Paul and Barnabas speak so effectively that large numbers of these people believe. In other words, they respond positively to the message about Jesus. But then we're told the unbelieving Jews stir up the rest of the Gentiles and poison their minds against Barnabas and Saul. Things get tough for the apostles. And then in the NIV, verse 3 says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. A better translation would be, however, they spent considerable time there. In other words, we're being told they stay on in spite of the opposition. And as they speak boldly for the Lord, he confirms the message By enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. That is always the purpose of signs and wonders. When God gives them, He gives them to confirm the word that's being spoken. They're never just there for their own sake. And they're never supposed to be the focus, their purpose is to back up the message. But even so, signs and wonders don't cause everybody to believe. Sometimes people say, if God would just do something spectacular, well, then I'd believe in him. But again and again in Scripture, we find people who refuse to believe even when God does do something spectacular. That's what happens here. Immediately after the signs and wonders are mentioned, We're told in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Signs and wonders do not take away the problem of unbelief. The good news divides men and women into believers and unbelievers. But it also unites people. Verse 5 mentions one kind of unity that the good news brings. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. Them is referring to Paul and Barnabas. We have seen in previous weeks that Jews were no friends of the Gentiles. But now they become allies against the message of God's grace. They are united in their hatred of the gospel. Something very similar happened at Jesus' crucifixion. Normally, the Jews despised their Roman overlords. But when Pilate referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews, the crowd shouted back, we have no king but Caesar. Normally, many of those people would have died before they made that statement. But their opposition to Jesus is greater than their opposition to Rome. In previous weeks, we've seen how the gospel unites believing Jews and Gentiles. Here, we're shown they can also be united in opposition to the gospel. Verse 6 says that Paul and Barnabas found out about the plot to stone them, and they fled. In the New Testament, we don't see Christians seeking death. They're willing to die in Christ's service, but they don't run towards death. Some in Iconium have genuinely believed. And Paul and Barnabas aren't going to forget about them. But for now, they move on to preach another day. Then we find that the good news also makes demands. We'll pick up in verse eight. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out Stand up in your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language. The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, "'Men, why are you doing this? "'We too are only men, human like you. "'We are bringing you good news, "'telling you to turn from these worthless things "'to the living God who made heaven and earth "'and sea and everything in them. "'In the past, he let all nations go their own way. "'Yet he has not left himself without testimony. "'He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven "'and crops in their seasons.'" He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. It seems that this all starts with Paul healing a lame man. But actually, it starts long before that. There was a story about the Greek gods Jupiter and Mercury, also known as Zeus and Hermes. According to that story, they had once visited the area around Lystra. They'd come disguised as human beings. And again and again, they were denied hospitality. And as the story goes, they later destroyed all the unfriendly homes in a flood. And now into a context where that story was well known come Paul and Barnabas. And Paul performs an obviously miraculous healing. We're told in verse 8, the man had been lame from birth. So he's not just getting back the strength in his legs. He never had it before. And when the crowd see the miracle, they connect it to the story that they all know. In verse 11, the gods have come down to us in human form. It's happening again. And this time, the people of Lystra are determined not to get caught out the way their ancestors were in the story. So verse 13 says, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. In one sense, the crowd is on the right track. They know that a greater power is at work. And they want to respond properly to it. Their approach is better than the Jewish leaders who respond to miracles by persecuting the apostles. But still, the crowd's religious enthusiasm is misdirected. And Paul and Barnabas do all they can to show the crowd that. Verse 14 says the apostles tear their clothes. That's a way of saying that the crowd's behavior is blasphemous. And then the apostles say in verse 15, "Man, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. The pressure to go along with this adoring crowd must have been huge for Paul and Barnabas. But not only does Paul resist the pressure, he tells this crowd the things they're building their lives around are worthless things. That's a courageous approach. In churches, we sometimes talk about God's unconditional love. And in one sense, yes, his love is unconditional. He comes to us as we are, And he graciously offers us a new life. It's completely a gift of his grace. God doesn't wait for us to clean up our act before he saves us. But the phrase unconditional love can be misleading. Because when God calls us and saves us, he does make demands of us. He does set out a condition for us. He says, if you want me, you must turn from these worthless things. Your turning to me must also involve turning away from all the idols that have been standing in my place. All those false sources of security and purpose. Money, sex, power, family. Those things can all have a good and proper place. But they are worthless as gods. We've been hearing recently in Colossians that turning to God involves ridding ourselves of the old ways of life. It involves taking off many of our old practices and priorities and ways of thinking. Jesus said anyone who does not carry his cross... And follow me cannot be my disciple. To the man who loved his money and who lived for his money, Jesus said, Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then come follow me. In other words, Jesus said to that man, Throw your old God away. I'm not going to share you with him. The good news makes demands. Here in Lystra, Paul stands in the middle of this crowd of religious people, and he points to their religious rituals, their belief in a whole pantheon of gods. And he says to them, turn from these worthless things to the living God. And that has to be part of our message today. It's not enough to just tell people about Jesus. We have to show them he's a better savior than the worthless things they're looking to for salvation. We have to show he's a better Lord than the other lords that they're serving. We have to show he's the real God and the gods they're worshiping are false. We have to let people know that if they turn to Jesus the whole orientation of their lives will have to change. Too often we give people the impression that Jesus is just another string for their bow, another insurance policy for their portfolio, another option for a good time. And then we wonder why people profess to follow Christ but carry on chasing after worthless things. Part of what the good news does is to expose the emptiness of everything but Jesus. And sometimes people will respond by falling down and worshiping him. And sometimes they will choose their worthless things instead of him. And they will hate him for threatening those worthless things. That is essentially what happens here in Lystra. One moment, this crowd is falling over themselves to worship Paul and Barnabas. But after Paul's speech, or probably even before the end of his speech, we read this in verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. The change here is so dramatic that it's almost unbelievable when we read it. But if we stop to think about it, it's not so unbelievable at all. One commentator calls this, A spectacular example of the fickleness of a mob. It's also an example of what people can be like when they're challenged about the false gods at the center of their life. They can get nasty. This crowd wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas because it suited their own desires and inclinations. Worshipping Paul and Barnabas wouldn't have involved giving anything up, just another dead bull or two to appease the gods. But when Paul challenged the crowd's desires and inclinations, when he called them to turn from their worthless things, then the crowd turned on Paul instead. I think it's accurate to say that our society has no problem with Christians until we explain that Christ is the only Savior. Once we say that, we're calling all other saviors false. And that makes people angry. It makes them angry whether their particular false Savior happens to be their wealth, or their career, or their sexual desires, or maybe their philosophy of life. And maybe we still have some of that left in us too. It's quite possible to enjoy church and to find the message at church comforting and uplifting in some way, but all the while be clinging to our worthless things. Some of those things might be good in their right place. But bad when they take God's place. And some of the things we cling to might have no proper place in our lives at all. Maybe our pride and selfish ambition. Pride and ambition that thinks it would be a waste to hand our lives over to Jesus. We've got our own little kingdom to build, we're not going to give that up to serve Jesus. Don't let worthless things hold you back from the living God. The text here doesn't describe Paul's recovery as being miraculous. What it says is, the crowd thought they had stoned him to death, but they were wrong. The picture here then is not of Paul leaping up to his feet. He drags himself Battered and bloodied to his feet. And he carries on. That was Paul's life. One preacher has compared the track of Paul's missionary journeys to the track left in the snow by a bleeding animal. This man literally left a trail of blood behind him all across Europe. But from Paul's perspective, it was all gain for him. As far as he was concerned, the things he had lost were worthless. What he'd gained was priceless. He wrote to the Philippians, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I am gain in Christ. Paul had found the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. He never regretted turning his back on worthless things. The good news unites and divides. It makes demands. And those who respond to the good news must be supported. New converts can't be left to sink or swim by themselves. It's not enough for us to ask people to make commitments and then abandon them. Look at verse 21. They preached the good news in that city, that's Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. This morning we joined Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. Then they moved on to Lystra and Derbe. And if you look at the map, you can see that at this point, it would be much easier for them to keep on going back to Antioch. That's where they started from. But in fact, they go back to each of the cities where they were persecuted. Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And they don't go back there because they just like a good beating. They go to strengthen those who had come to faith in Christ. Look at verse 22. They returned strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. Paul and Barnabas had left these cities very abruptly, but now they go back, they meet with the believers, and they support them in three main ways. First, they give them instruction and encouragement. The beginning of verse 21 literally says strengthening the souls of the disciples. That happens by instructing them in the faith. That doesn't mean they taught the believers how to have faith. It means they taught them the content of the faith. The faith is a way of talking about the truth or the doctrine. It's the things that Christians need to know and believe. So it would include, for example, the truth that God is the all-powerful creator, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he's going to return to set up an eternal kingdom, the new heaven and earth. It's quite possible to call out to God for mercy and to receive mercy without understanding much about those truths. But if new believers are going to survive and thrive, they need instruction in those truths. That's how we get stronger as Christians, by deepening our understanding of the faith we've entered into. The New Testament often says that once we have received Christ, we're to grow by putting our roots down deep into Christ. That means deepening our understanding of the truth about him. That truth is contained in both the Old and New Testaments. One of the reasons we go chapter by chapter through the Bible on Sundays is to strengthen our souls by deepening our understanding of the faith. We'll never stand up to the storms of life unless we make it a lifelong commitment to strengthen our souls in God's truth. That's what Paul and Barnabas help these believers to do. And alongside the instruction, they also give encouragement. They encourage them to remain true to the faith. They also support these new believers by giving them accurate expectations of the Christian life. In the middle of verse 22, they say, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We've noticed in the past that in the New Testament, the kingdom of God has come and it is coming. God's kingdom means God's rule. When Jesus came to earth the first time, those who followed him entered into God's kingdom. They came under God's rule. That's the position we are in today. Through faith in Jesus, we are genuinely in the kingdom of God. But it's also true, according to the New Testament, that the kingdom is coming. One day Jesus will return to earth. And then every inch of this earth will be seen to be under his rule. All rebellion will finally be crushed. The kingdom will have fully come. And it's that future sense of the kingdom, verse 22, is talking about. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The message is that if we are going to enter into Christ's eternal kingdom, there are going to be hardships along the way. Many of them. Those hardships don't earn us a place in the kingdom, but we must go through them on our way to the kingdom. We are deceiving new converts if we tell them, come to Jesus and all your troubles will disappear. All your lemons will turn into lemonade. That's not true. The Bible tells us over and over again that it's not true. Romans chapter 8 says that until Christ returns, we will be groaning along with the whole of creation. Now, it's true, we don't groan the way the unbeliever groans. We can have a deep peace and joy even as we groan. We groan with the sure and certain hope that one day our groaning will end. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But until that day, there will be tears in our eyes. We will get sick. Loved ones will die. People will misunderstand us and mistreat us. Not all the time, but it is going to happen. And if we love new converts, we'll tell them the truth. The truth that Jesus doesn't always save us from suffering, but he will always be with us in the midst of our suffering. He will strengthen us and preserve us. And yes, sometimes he may take some of the suffering away, but not always. He didn't take away Paul's thorn in the flesh. Instead, he showed his power in the midst of Paul's weakness. Christians are certainly not to be pessimists. That's a denial of God's promises and his power. But we're not to be naive optimists either. The difficulties of life will soon floor us if we're like that. The Bible calls us to be realists. This world is broken. And so long as we live in it, We are going to experience brokenness ourselves. But God's promises are sure. His power is supreme. One day his kingdom will come fully. And in the meantime, there is joy for us as we grow in our knowledge of him. As we prove his faithfulness every single day. His mercies are new to us every morning. Paul and Barnabas also support these new believers by giving them leadership. Verse 23 says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This is interesting in the light of a command that Paul gives in 1 Timothy. There he says that an elder must not be a recent convert. Yet in these churches in Acts 14, all the converts are recent. At this point, none of them would have been believers for more than a few months. And that tells us that what counts as recent is going to be relative to the context of each particular church. In these churches, presumably it meant the person's been a believer for a few weeks rather than a few months. It's relative. So let's not assume, even in our context, that someone has to be a convert for 10 or 20 years before they can be an elder. What Paul and Barnabas do also shows the importance of having leadership in the church. The idea that every decision should be made by consensus or that the majority opinion should carry the day, that's not a biblical idea. That's also true that the church should not be a dictatorship. For one thing, the, the pattern seems to be elders, plural, plural in each church. Leadership should never be a one-man show. There should be a team of elders. And as far as I can see, the New Testament churches were congregational. In other words, the final decisions on important matters were put to the congregation. The elders don't just issue commands in the church. But, They are put in place by the church to lead the church. So unless the church body has good reason to do otherwise, they ought to follow the elders' lead. In these very, very young churches, it seems Paul and Barnabas appoint the elders. But I think the normal pattern is that a church recognizes and appoints its own elders, That's a very important responsibility. And that's made clear for us here in verse 23. This decision is made with prayer and fasting. And it's done acknowledging that ultimately it's the Lord who leads the church. For all the help that elders can be, it's the Lord the believers are trusting in, not the elders. Paul and Barnabas have completed their mission. They've spread the good news in nine different cities. They've gone back to strengthen those who responded to the good news. And now they're going back to the fellowship that sent them. Verse 24 says, After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Notice that this report of the missionary journey ends with a reminder of who has really been at work. In verse 27, they reported all that God had done through them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God calls us, He sends us, He opens the doors for us, He brings men and women to faith. And He must get the glory for all that He does. We're going to join together to give him glory as we sing to God be the glory.